You're listening to the Hoping in God's Future sermon series at Sojourn East. Whether in times of peace or calamity, security or uncertainty, God invites His people to look to Him with hope because He is both sovereign and good. Peace be with you, Sojourn East. It's good to be with you wherever you're watching this. You know, it was just about a year ago that my wife and I booked a family vacation to Disney World. And we had spent years talking about it, planning for this, and even saving for this trip. And so when we actually put the deposit down, we were both incredibly excited. We called a family meeting. We brought all of our kids together. We sat them down, and we made the grand announcement. We're going to Disney World. And our kids' response was not what we expected. It would be stretching it to say that they yawned in response to this news, but it wouldn't be stretching the truth by much. And my wife and I were deeply confused by this. We thought they would be screaming and shouting and jumping for joy. And so she pressed in and just asked them, aren't you guys excited? And one of my younger kids piped up and asked, what's Disney World? Now, one of my older kids stepped in and rather unhelpfully responded, well, it's this place that you go to, it's really far away, it takes a long time to get there, and you go there, and you do a whole bunch of things. And I'm like, well, I guess that's one way you could describe it. But it, it hit me that my kids, they didn't have a category for what Disney World, and a tri- what a trip to Disney World was gonna be like. And so we hopped on to YouTube, and pulled up a bunch of videos, and my kids' eyes, they started to widen as they, they saw all the things that we were going to be doing and where we were going to be staying, and their excitement and their hope began to build rather quickly as they really began to realize what this future trip had in store for them. See, hope, hope is funny like that. If our hope is blurry It's not all that helpful, and it's not all that useful. But when our hope becomes clear and well-defined, it can provide us with a tremendous amount of strength and joy and encouragement. And we, as a church, we're right in the middle of a series looking at our future hope, the hope we have that God has promised to us in His Word. And our goal in this series is to bring that future hope into razor-sharp focus so that you might draw on it to find encouragement and the strength to persevere and persist, especially in these hard times. Last week, Pastor Jonathan, he taught on the hope we have in heaven. And I want to thank him so much for preaching that sermon, because that's a very hard sermon to preach. And the reason it's so hard to preach is because the Bible doesn't actually say very much about heaven, at least as we understand heaven. Sure, there are a few passages, and Jonathan did a great job looking at those and teaching on those. But for the authors of the New Testament, heaven is not our ultimate hope. And I realize that that might sound strange to you. It sounded strange to me the first time I heard this news. You see, I'd always thought that the essence of the Christian afterlife is that we die and then we shed these bodies like a snake sheds its skin, and then we would go to heaven and be with God. And while that's true, it's not the whole truth, and it's not the whole story. You see, the Bible teaches us that while heaven will be a place of great joy 
and wonder, it also teaches us that heaven is temporary, that it's only going to exist for a certain amount of time. Because the great promise of the New Testament is that a day is coming when Christ is going to return and he's going to give us new physical resurrected bodies. And our hope, our great hope, the the high watermark of Christian hope is that we, in these resurrected bodies, we will live with God forever in a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. And this resurrection hope, that's the, the topic of today's message. Now, the, the longest passage we have on our resurrection hope is found in 1 Corinthians 15. And in that chapter, it's a very long chapter, one of the longest chapters we have of Paul's. But in that chapter, Paul, he actually gets into a, a significant amount of detail talking about what our resurrection bodies will be like. He answers some of the common questions that people have surrounding this whole idea of resurrection. And so with our time together today, I'm going to use three of the questions that Paul answers in this text as my outline. And the first question, the big question, is how can our lifeless bodies be resurrected? How is that possible? Like how, after we lay these bodies down, after they are cremated or they decompose in the dirt, how can they be brought back to life? What about people who've been lost at sea or burned at a stake or eaten by wild animals? How can these bodies be brought back to life? Now, Paul was asked that very question in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, we're going to look at Paul's answer to that question, but, but the, <laughs> the summary of his answer is, when you ask that question, it shows that you're thinking about this all wrong. You see, and to understand his answer, we have to make a distinction between resurrection and what we could call resuscitation. Resuscitation is when God breathes life back into the body of someone who's died. And there are a number of instances of this in the Bible. Probably the most famous is Lazarus. And when Jesus brought Lazarus back to life, while it was certainly an amazing miracle, I would say that it still falls far short of the biblical hope of resurrection. And the reason it falls short is because even though Lazarus was brought back to life and he was back with his sisters, we know that eventually he still died. Now, hopefully he died of old age, but even after Jesus brought him back to life, he still died. And the reason he still died is the same reason we die. Our bodies, as Paul says throughout this chapter, they're perishable. They have a shelf life. Over time, our bodies do not get stronger and faster and healthier. Over time, they wear down. And if we live long enough, all of us will be subjected to what one author called the serial humiliations of aging. Like our skin will wrinkle and sag, our hair will start to fall out or completely fall out, our joints will go bad, our organs will fail, and eventually we will die. Our bodies are perishable. The bodies we have right now, they have a shelf life because of the fall, and they are not fit for eternity. 
And so mere resuscitation would, would never be enough for us to live with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And Paul makes this exact point in verse 50 when he declares, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You see, the big question is not how can the dead be raised? The big question is how can our bodies be made fit for eternity? How can what is perishable be made imperishable. And now we're ready to see Paul's answer in verse 36 when he writes, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. To explain how our lifeless bodies can be resurrected, Paul points to the wonders of the natural world, to the miracle of seeds and how they grow into plants. You know, one of the unexpected highlights of this season is almost every day I get to go on walks with my kids. And I don't know about your neighborhood, but right now my neighborhood is covered in helicopter seeds. And my kids love these things. They love to grab them. They love throwing them into the air and watch them flutter to the ground. And on one of our walks, one of my younger kids asked me, Dad, what is this? I held it up and I said, well, it's a helicopter seat. They're like, but, but what is it? I said, well, that's a future maple tree. I pointed to the tree and they held the seed and the kid looked at the seed and the tree and they had this amazement come over their face and they said, that's a miracle. And really, it's pretty hard to argue with them. It's hard to argue that when a seed falls into the ground, that seemingly lifeless seed and it seems to die in the ground. But if you give it the right conditions and you give it enough time, it can grow and transform into a majestic maple tree. It's really incredible and it's kind of mysterious, but it happens all of the time all around us. And what Paul is saying here is he says, do you want to know how our bodies will be resurrected? It's kind of like that. It's like the seed that grows into the tree. In verse 50, Paul explains further when he writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. On the day Christ returns, the present bodies that we have now in whatever state they're in on that day, they will be transformed into glorious resurrection bodies. And that leads to the second question. What will these resurrected bodies be like? And to answer that question, I think it's helpful to go back to the analogy that Paul just used. You know, if our current body is like an acorn, then our resurrection body will be more like a towering oak tree. And I really think this analogy is quite profound when you think about it, because consider an acorn and the oak tree that it grows into. Are those two things the same? Well, from one perspective, of course not. An acorn weighs less than an ounce, and an oak tree can weigh several tons. And so, in one sense, they're not the same at all. But in another sense, when you think deeper, is an 
acorn and, and the oak tree it grows into it, are they the same thing? Well, kind of, because they have the same DNA. And the, the tendrils that grew out of that acorn, they form the initial root system of the tree. And so, yeah, they kind of are. The, the question, are, are they the same? No, but also yes. See, there's a continuity between the two, but there's also this radical transformation. And this principle of continuity and transformation, I think it helps us greatly in understanding the nature of our resurrection. You see, on the one hand, you will still be you. You will still be unique and distinct from all other people when... uh, John talks about how every tribe, tongue, and nation will be in heaven. I think that's true. And so there will be things about our life and our body here that will absolutely carry over. But at the same time, we're going to be radically transformed. As Paul says, we'll no longer be imperishable and mortal. We will be imperishable and immortal. This transformation, it's it's really hard for us to, to wrap our minds around. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis envisions that our resurrected bodies, they will be more solid, more substantial, and more real than they, they are right now. And, and that's just, I think he's right, but I also think that's a hard thing for us to understand. I think it's hard for everyone to understand, but I don't know if it was quite as hard for the disciples to understand. You see, because the disciples encountered the resurrected Jesus, the first fruits of our resurrection. And when they encountered Jesus, in one sense, he was the same. He still had the same face. He still had the same voice. He walked with them. He, he shared fish sandwiches with them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So he was the same, but he was also different. He could walk through walls. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, that story, it, it seems like he could teleport. And so there's something about Christ's resurrected body that related to space and time differently than our current bodies too. Maybe the most significant thing about Jesus' resurrected body is that that body could never die. So he's the same Jesus. He still has scars that Thomas could touch, but he had been radically transformed. I think that helps us in understanding our future resurrection. And I won't pretend to know how all of this will play out. And I don't think we can get answers to all of our questions, but God has given us some details in his word. I can say with confidence that we're no no longer going to experience the limitations that come with childhood or old age or disability. We're no longer going to experience the limitations of exhaustion and weariness that simply come from being human. I don't know about you, but over the last couple of months, I've really felt that perishableness of what it means to be human. I felt my limitations. I felt that weariness. Our resurrected bodies will never experience those feelings. The reason why is because our earthly bodies right now, they're empowered and sustained by food and water and sleep and exercise, but our resurrection bodies will be empowered and sustained by the very Spirit of God. And when that happens, we will no longer be susceptible to anger or lust or jealousy or envy or any other sin or temptation. 
anxiety and depression will be no more. Cancer and Crohn's disease and all forms of disease will be no more. Even death itself will be no more. And that's the great climax of 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul writes, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, we can read those words right now with a sense of, hopeful anticipation. But every time we bury someone that we love, it still stings. Every time someone we love dies, it still feels like death got the victory. But Paul is telling us on the day of our resurrection, we will be able to say these words with a firm, confident resolve because death will be no more because our bodies will be imperishable and immortal. I mean, when you step back and consider what Paul teaches us here in this chapter, you realize that who we are right now, we are, we are but shadows of our future selves. It's hard for us to even imagine the kind of bodies that we're going to have in the new heavens and the new earth, but we know they're going to be glorious. And this is our great hope, the great hope that was secured when Jesus walked out of the tomb. That leads us to the last question. While that hope is incredible and honestly almost hard to believe, what what difference does it make for our life right now? Why does this matter? How does this promised future shape our lives in the present? Now you might expect Paul to end this really long detailed, theologically deep, and an intricate chapter where he's talking about the nature of future resurrection, you might expect him to end the chapter by encouraging us to keep our eyes up and our hope kindled as we wait with eager expectation for Christ to return. And while that is an absolutely appropriate application of this text, that's not what Paul says. Instead, Paul encourages us in light of this to keep our heads down and our hands to the plow. In verse 58, he writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is a profound verse right here. Paul is saying that our resurrection hope It shouldn't lead us to withdraw or disengage from the world, but rather it should lead us to press in and press on, to persevere in doing good and doing the work that God has put before us. And he tells us why. He says our labors in this life are not in vain, which means in some mysterious way, nothing that we do in the Lord on this earth is ever wasted. Everything that we do in the Lord, in this life, is going to carry over in some way into God's renewed creation. See, Paul is challenging his Corinthian readers to think in new patterns, but he's also challenging us to think in new patterns. It's common for Christians to think, well, we've got this life and it's hard, and then we go to heaven and this life will be forgotten. 
You know, when I was a young Christian, I was taught that when we die, we go to heaven. That's where we live forever. But I wasn't just taught that. I was also taught that eventually the day is coming when God would destroy everything physical, that everything was going to burn. If that's how we understand our future hope, then it's only logical for us as Christians to withdraw and retreat from this world because it's evil and it's destined for fire. If it's all going to burn, then what we do in this life besides evangelism, nothing really matters. What Paul wants us to see here is that's not how history ends. History ends with our resurrection and the renewal of all things, which means what we do in this life matters because it will carry over. How we spend our days matters. Our lives here and now really matter. And commenting on this verse and Paul's encouragement to continue on in the work of the Lord, N.T. Wright says that we do so knowing you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. The resurrection changes everything. It changes how we see the world. It changes how we, we see other people. And it changes how we even see and think about our own lives. It has the power to give us courage and strength and boldness. It was this resurrection hope that led the early church to care for lepers and take up the cause of orphans. It was this resurrection hope that empowered them to love their enemies and to stand against tyrants and persevere in the face of great persecution. This resurrection hope is also what propelled them out into the world to share the gospel, the good news, because this really is good news. It's the best news. Now for us, thinking about where we are in this moment in time, the last Several weeks, they've been strange and disorienting, pretty discouraging for me. And I know for a lot of you, I've talked with a lot of you, and it seems like this malaise is really setting in. It's Groundhog Day, the same day over and over again. And we don't have a whole lot of hope right now, short-term hope. There's not an awful lot that we have to look forward to. My prayer for us, though, is that in the absence of the short-term hope, we might put even more energy looking forward to the great hope God has given us in Christ. And my prayer is that as we consider this hope and the goodness of God in promising us these things, I pray that it will encourage us to keep our hands to the plow. And if our hands have slipped, 
to put the hand back on. May it strengthen us to remain faithful while we wait for God to complete his work. Let's pray this forward. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.